The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. We can see that illuminated sign that marks the end of the journey. This vaccine will help us get past this pandemic once and for all. We need people to have faith that this vaccine is safe and that they should take it. The thing that's going to stop us from seeing the end of this pandemic are people going, oh, I'm not so sure. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Roger Hearing. And a very good afternoon. I'm Caroline Hepke. Well, we begin with the vaccination programme as the country has reached a significant milestone. All adults over the age of 50 have now been offered a COVID jab. The government target has been reached a few days ahead of schedule with more than 32 million first doses having been given. Now, adults between 45 and 50 years of age are being invited to go and get their jab. Dr Susan Hopkins is the Chief Medical Advisor for NHS Test and Trace. The uh, highest risk population in the country are vaccinated and will have protection from severe disease and hospitalisation. We've got a long way to go. And the next group coming forward, uh, the 40 to 50 year olds, really need to step forward and take the vaccination when they're offered. And just this morning, NHS said the first Moderna jabs are being delivered in England today. Well, joining us on the programme, I'm very pleased to say, is Sarah Olney, Liberal Democrat MP for Richmond Park, spokesperson for Transport and for Business and Industrial Strategy. Sarah, welcome to the programme and thanks for being with us. We'll talk about the vaccines in just a moment. But first, if I could ask you, I mean, today, yesterday was, a, I guess, a bigger, a big day in Richmond Park as it was across the rest of England, a day of opening up. What was your impression of how it all went and whether people were sticking to the safety things they are still supposed to stick to? Um, well, uh, good morning. Well, I, I mean, it was a, 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 a good day in Richmond Park. Certainly uh, walked past the number of pubs yesterday and the, the, the ones that have got gardens were filling up nicely. And I've been in a few shops around the constituency and they, they reported brisk sales. I think the weather uh, put some people off. I was quite surprised to find it snowing first thing yesterday morning. Um, but uh, though generally, I think people are very happy to have the freedom to go back to the pub and back to shops. You know, the shops I were in, people were being cautious. There were masks. People were keeping their distance. They were using the hand sanitizer. So I think most people do understand that, you know, we're not out of the woods yet. And we've all still got to take responsibility for each other, not just ourselves. Mm. Uh, and that certainly that uh, didn't, didn't seem to be stopping people from getting out and enjoying themselves yesterday. No. So come on, it can't have been all observation, Sarah. Did you get a haircut? Go shopping? Did you have a drink? <laughs> I've got my haircut booked for Saturday. <laughs> Good stuff. But I went shopping. I have to confess it's the shop size missed the most, personally. <laughs> so, so in your constituency, I mean, obviously, I guess there obviously are shops, there obviously are, uh, I guess, gyms and, uh, and, and hairdressing salons and all the rest of it. They've clearly had a very, very bad time. How how much are they able to come back? How much are they reliant on government help to do so? Um, I mean, so I think what's going to be difficult for businesses over the next uh, few months is the social distancing, because that really limits the number of people that can be served at any one time. So I've been, I've been speaking to sort of specifically sort of the hairdressers and the beauty salons and so on. Um, and, you know, those are businesses that are really built around hygiene and maintaining high hygiene standards. So there's quite a lot of frustration there that they're still being asked for social distancing. And obviously everybody accepts that, but there's no point in the roadmap yet 
which is saying from this date, you know, we don't need to have social distancing in salons anymore. So they can't really plan for the point at which they can be back and fully operational. Um, and I think the same is true. I mean, the same isn't quite true for hospitality because they've been given dates about indoors and so on. But uh, and I think, to be fair, it's difficult to know when social distancing can end because that is still a really important part of the uh, of the of the uh, approach to the pandemic. But there, there's still a, quite a bit of frustration that there isn't a bit more clarity about exactly what what it will what it will take before social distancing can can end. Hmm. We're going to uh, move on um, now, uh, having reached that milestone of having offered a jab to all the over 50s. It's the under 50s now. Do you think that there's going to be any increased hesitation amongst your constituents about taking the AstraZeneca jab because of the worries around blood clots? You know, in other countries, um, that vaccine, that jab is being limited to people perhaps over the age of 60, depends which country you look at, but we're, we're allowing it for people over the age of 30. Do you think the 30s and 40-year-old people are going to be worried? Well, I think they are. I think that's unavoidable. Um, and I think, uh, you know, because we are seeing differences in responses uh, depending on age, I'm really glad that we've now got significant uh, batches of Moderna coming in because I think that will help. I think if there is at all the ability to give people a choice, I think that would help an enormous amount. But to be honest, I do think it's helpful that um, there's there's been quite a lot of honesty about the AstraZeneca jab, uh, you know, the announcements that were made last week, because at least people feel now that there's, you know, that they've got the information. And I think it's important to stress that the blood clots that they've found has only really happened in a very small minority of cases. When you think about the, the millions of people across the country who've already received their jab with you know, very little or no side effects, uh, I think that, more than anything, will help to reassure people. Well, if I've done my calculations correctly, Sarah, I think you're just under the age that will now be brought in <laughs> in terms of it. I'm not going to be ungallant and go further than that. But, but would, would you... How would it change your mind? Because obviously the balance of risk, I guess, is what's in concern. It is the balance is different for younger people just because they're less likely to have a bad outcome uh, from COVID. Well, that's absolutely right, and I think it's really important to to uh, to consider that and to think about the you know the, the the as you say the balance of risk that are facing younger people. They're already less likely to suffer severe side effects, but are they are they? Uh, going to have greater uh, risk of blood clots than older people. And I think that is something that, you know, the public health teams need to take seriously and think about. If we're starting to see significant vaccine hesitancy in the under 40s or the under 30s, we need to address that quite um I was going to say robustly, but, you know, make sure that people have got an option, that it's providing an option of, of jab, of uh, vaccine, um, of vaccines is an answer to that. And that needs to be something they, they should be prepared to do. Hmm. I noticed that you tweeted about um, asymptomatic testing being available across Richmond. I mean, there's now um, this surge testing for a variant that's been detected in Wandsworth and Lambeth, close to your constituency. Mm. Uh, There must be concern about that. Quite a few cases there. Yes, I think there is a lot of concern, but I think we're we're much better placed to try and tackle that than we might have been a few months ago. You've just mentioned there there's a huge increase in testing, and I think everyone's got a much better access to tests, but also a much greater understanding of the importance of testing. Um, and I think uh, I very much hope that those um, those that that outbreak can be identified and and constrained. Um, and as I say, where, where we are now, people are much under people don't want to undermine the progress we've made. We can see, if you like, the end in sight 
Um, and I really, really hope and I would really encourage anyone who's contacted by the local authority to get that test uh, and to do whatever's necessary to, to, uh, to constrain the spread. Now, we've been talking about the economic impact of all this, of course, and, and the opening up seeming to, hope, to bring hope to a lot of businesses. But it sh- we shouldn't say, of course, that the p- pandemic has been the only shadow hanging over the UK economy. Uh, and the Liberal Democrats, I know, have pushed with this as well, that Brexit, the post-Brexit solution, um, has not necessarily been kind to some small business in particular. But, I mean, we are getting some evidence now that perhaps UK exports to the EU are rebounding a, a bit. Does this suggest that maybe the government was right a lot of all that was in fact teething troubles rather than anything worse yeah i mean you're right that they're rebounding a bit but they're certainly not back to where they were and it's really difficult at this stage to disaggregate what's a covid effect from what's a brexit effect so i think it's probably too early to start making any definitive pronouncements over what is and isn't a brexit effect i think um there's a couple of factors still at play here uh, obviously We think that a lot of the import-export depression in January was due to stockpiling, say. We don't yet know the extent to which COVID in itself has had an impact on on trade. Um, So uh, there's some of that bounce back, you know, and as I say, it's nowhere, it hasn't taken us anywhere uh, near back to where we were. Uh, Some of that bounce back could be explained, as I say, by stockpiles running out. So I think there will definitely be an element to which people have got to grips with the paperwork uh, and they're now, you know, processes have put in place the new processes, and they're starting to run more smoothly. But it's, it's, it's. Um, there are several different factors which I think will still um, have an impact. Firstly, you know, that not every, not every uh, issue is a teething problem. Not every issue is a paperwork issue. Um, what we, I think, what I'm probably more concerned about is the long-term impact. People not choosing to develop new business relationships with the UK simply because it's more difficult. They'll look elsewhere in the EU for their future trading partners. And that as we get mm-hmm. up and running, we will, we will miss out on future opportunities because we perceive that, you know, um, EU partners will perceive that it's just too difficult to trade with the UK. And I think we won't yet see the full impact of Brexit for, you know, quite some time. Okay. So that on Brexit. Uh, I mean, the other. Uh, important story is the former Prime Minister David Cameron. Uh, There's now going to be an investigation into um, lobbying, into um, the issues surrounding Greensill Capital. What do you think should be the focus of that inquiry? Um, Well, I mean, I think one of the things that I'm really puzzled about is is why uh, anyone in the government thought they needed a a supply chain finance solution at all. Because it, that, you know that isn't at all clear. Obviously, there's a, a role that that kind of company can play in the private sector, but its role in the public sector is not is not particularly clear. So it very much seems as if it's kind of introducing friends to people in government and seeing what can be done to help them. And we've seen this a lot with PPE and various other things during the uh, during the, the pandemic itself. And it just feels like there's a whole culture somewhere at the top of government. It's all about who you know, rather than what's actually required and who has the expertise to deliver it. So I really want, I would, I'd be very interested to see the inquiry get to the bottom of exactly what Lex Greensill was offering the government and why they thought it was something that they needed um, and how these decisions are made. But is there also a case for actually saying, very briefly, if you would, no former senior politicians should be involved in lobbying, at least not for a long period after they've left office? That's one of those situations where actually people who've been at the top of a government department and understand how that government department works and what impact that has on the wider economy and industry have some very useful insights to offer to businesses, and particularly new businesses, new entrants into the sector who want to understand how to bid for contracts. I think they've got 
useful advice to offer. But I think uh, possibly the, the, the yeah. red line we maybe need to draw is to what extent should they be engaged directly with, right. in conversations with former colleagues. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Now, let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics today. And surge testing for a coronavirus variant is being deployed in parts of South London. As we mentioned earlier in the program, 44 cases of the mutation first identified in South Africa have been found in the boroughs of Wandsworth and Lambeth, and also 30 possible infections. Now, that means everyone living in those areas is encouraged to take a test, even if they're not showing any symptoms. The vaccination programme, though, has helped to boost the British economy. We got GDP figures out this morning. Uh, So we saw a rebound in February thanks to stronger consumer confidence. GDP rose 0.4% following a revised 2.2% decline in January, with all the main sectors of the economy seeing output rise. That said, though, the data was softer than expected and the economy does remain 7.8% smaller than it was before the pandemic hit Britain last year. And as I mentioned to Sarah Olney, the post-Brexit damage to trade with the European Union has partially recovered in February, and that seems to be thanks to improved exports of cars and pharmaceuticals. UK goods bound for the EU surged 47% from January, while imports from the bloc increased 7.3%. The data adds to evidence that trade recovered somewhat in the second month since Britain left the EU's single market and customs union after what the UK government called teething problems in January. And pressure is mounting on the former Prime Minister David Cameron over his private lobbying efforts as a senior advisor to Greensill Capital, the now collapsed finance firm. Boris Johnson has ordered an independent inquiry into the scandal that will be overseen by the Cabinet Office. The Prime Minister's spokesperson said that he wanted to ensure the government was acting completely transparently. Now, it comes as Labour's mounting a fresh attempt to press ministers over the matter. The Shadow Chancellor Annalise Dodds has been granted an urgent Commons question, calling on Chancellor Rishi Sunak to explain how Greensill was granted access to a Covid loan scheme for businesses. So those are some of our top political uh, points this morning. Now back to the vaccine rollout. Over 45s can now book a coronavirus vaccine. The NHS website has been updated after the government hit its latest target three days early. Jabs have now been offered to the government's top nine priority groups. But Chris Hopson from NHS Providers, which represents trusts in England, says that people still need to stick to the rules once they've been vaccinated. This virus has a nasty habit of mutating and effectively uh, creating new variants. And we still don't fully understand exactly how much protection each of these vaccines gives us against those uh, variants. 
Well, for more on this, let's bring in Professor Sean Griffiths, who is Emeritus Professor at the Chinese University of Hong Kong and joins us uh, today. Sean, thank you so much for being with us. I suppose we do have to give a resounding cheer for the successful rollout of the vaccine that actually, amazingly, the government managed to hit the target early. Uh, Good morning. Yes, we hit the target early. That's great. As a country, everyone's been turning up and... uh, all over 50s have uh, at least been offered a jab, and many have had two. So that, that, that's really good news in terms of providing protection against the virus uh, in, against the most, for the most vulnerable people. So it's an interesting moment, Sean, in this. Now, I mean, you've got great uh, background in this. You, of course, uh, led some of the response in, in Hong Kong to the SARS uh, pandemic, epidemic or pandemic there. And, of course, um, you, you've spoken to us many times, in fact, during this crisis. Are you surprised, really, in the end, that the outcome, at least at this stage in terms of the vaccine rollout, has been as good as it is? Or, or is it simply that the government planning here happened to work just for once? Well, it, it is good news because we were worried at one stage about availability of vaccines. You know, vaccines are quite fragile things. They, they're not that predictable. And we were talking about uh, what, what's the supply going to be like? You know, can we keep the supply up? Which is why they moved on to um, making sure that everybody who'd been offered a first jab got offered a second jab. And that's the process that's being rolled out. But now the supply is adequate to allow for um, under uh, 45 pluses to be invited and it'll roll down so that people between, you know, over 30 will be offered the jab within the foreseeable future. So that's, that, that is good news and we have done this really well as a country. It hasn't just been the supply of the vaccine, it's also been the rollout through the logistics managed by uh, the NHS and, and, and others that have been very impressive. Yeah, absolutely. But what do you think then of the age limit? I mean, there's been um, you know, question and investigation into um, AstraZeneca side effects. The UK is saying that it's OK for people over the age of 30 to take the jab. Other countries aren't um, doing the same. Are we in the right here or not? Well, each country needs to evaluate the information that's been provided to the regulators, both to the European Medicines Agency and to our own MRHA, which uh, has has looked very carefully, along with the Joint Committee on Vac and NIM for the UK, looked very carefully at all the data that's available. Uh, and the risk, the the, the modelling of the risk, the risk-benefit ratio done by Cambridge University shows why in the UK we've chosen to um, suggest that under-30s don't have AstraZeneca but have uh, something like Moderna, which is now coming on stream. Uh, because and, and this is about risk-benefit and making decisions on very rare events. Uh, In general, it's much worse to get COVID. Getting COVID is much more serious and it also carries a higher risk of clotting. So this is where people need to take the information on board uh, and understand that the decisions have been made out of uh, a precautionary principle being very cautious. And as yet, there is no link about causality. It is, uh, you know, this is a correlation. Mm. But causality is yet to be established. So vaccines, you know, the general message is vaccines are safe and you'll be given the appropriate one. But the problem in all this, as I'm sure you're only too well aware, is that what we're talking about there, balances of probability, quite high mathematical calculations in some cases, 
don't always uh, aren't always very apparent to a lot of people out there whose normal daily life doesn't involve considering these things. And the people we already knew there was hesitancy. Isn't this simply going to be a really bad PR job for vaccines as a whole? And there's going to be more hesitancy as a result. Well, you ha- what you have to think about is there are many other things that you do in your life on a daily basis that carry risk. And so, for example, I mean, everyone's been sort of mentioning the risk of the contraceptive pill, where there is a risk of one in 2,000 of clotting. Well, many people will weigh that up and think it's actually, uh, you know, many women will say, actually, I'd rather not get pregnant and take the risk of a clot than not take the pill. And, and so you have to start to think a bit like that. But also, if you take... Um, you know, you take a paracetamol, there's a risk of side effects from a paracetamol. So I think you need to uh, think everything has risks and you need to weigh this up. And the basic message is that COVID itself is a nasty disease. Even if you're younger, uh, you may get long COVID. Um, and if we look across at, the, at Brazil, what we're hearing from Brazil is that many of the patients in hospital, in intensive care at the current time, are actually younger people. So we must never be complacent about um, you know, whether or not we take the vaccine. We must think about why is it we're doing it? We're doing it to protect ourselves. We're also doing it to protect our populations. Mm. And I think it's thinking it's not just about ourselves. It's about actually that we need to keep the level of vaccine across the pop- uh, level of vaccine uptake high, the level of, uh, of virus low across our population to protect our population. Um, we mentioned earlier in the programme the South Africa variant that's being tested for in, in boroughs in South London. Um, are, this is the big concern, isn't it? Variants. Is the government and the NHS at the moment focus enough on this? Are there enough restrictions, for example, around travel to prevent that sort of nightmare scenario of going back to square one you know, from happening? Well, at the moment, we're still not allowed to travel. And so we're waiting till May to find out, you know, unless you've got a special reason, you're not allowed to travel. So we wait till May. We also need to reinforce that although we can go to pubs, go to the hairdresser, go to the gym, we still need to remember the rule of six in terms of how many people we're meeting. We need to remember uh, or two two households in a bubble. We, we need to remember the hands, face, space messages about staying outside if we are meeting people. All these things still apply because we need to keep that level of disease in the population as low as possible because variants can emerge and we need to just decrease the chance that variants emerge. And then when they do emerge, do the surge testing, such as we're seeing in Lambeth and Southwark, which will identify the cases and, and look at the chain of transmission and hopefully break that chain of transmission. Because if you test positive with a PCR test, whatever variant you've got, you do need to isolate. Uh, and we also know the risk is that one in three um, people with the disease who have the virus don't know they've got it. So testing is very important. Lateral flow testing across the general population, specific surge testing with PCR in anywhere where we have a hotspot or a high number of cases. Those are still parts of controlling the pandemic along with vaccine uptake and taking the vaccine. So we're not out of the woods mm. yet. Things are getting better. Uh, you know, we're able to do more things. That's great. Things, and the progress is good. There is, uh, you know, many fewer people in hospital, fewer people in ICU. Unfortunately, the death rate's falling. It's just that, uh, you know, um, the, the disease, we're not clear of the yeah. disease and the disease is still around us in other countries. 
Sean, is it time, do you think, to start thinking about post-COVID very briefly in the sense of thinking about long COVID? You mentioned it already. It is an issue here as much as it's an issue in Brazil. Is it time to start devoting resources to that, perhaps away from dealing with, with emergency cases? We definitely need to uh, identify cases of long COVID and give people as much support as we can. And we also need to make sure that those who didn't come forward with other conditions uh, because they were worried about COVID, worried about going to the health service at a time of COVID, make sure people come forward for treatment of other conditions as well. Make sure that the NHS is actually able to provide the best care it can across the whole board of diseases, not just to focus on COVID. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.